Welcome to the DTB podcast for December 2023, volume 61, number 12. My name's David Fazakli and I'm DTB's Deputy Editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, Editor-in-Chief. Thank you for joining us for this podcast in which we will talk about the content of December's issue of DTB. I'll just kick off by saying thank you for another email that we've received uh, from a listener. Uh, This one says... I am genuinely loving your dialogues and the way you address different topics. Uh, Now that you've approached the topic of pharmacogenomics, wondering if precision medicine is something you'd be of interest to bring up in a podcast. Once again, thank you for your work. Well, great. Thank you for the feedback, James. uh, Something we should tackle again, do you think? Yes, quite possibly. I'm just amused. Thank you for your work. It doesn't feel like work, I'll be honest. Um, This is all good stuff. I'm really, you know, I think, we, we really enjoy doing this. And uh, yes, I think anything that's of interest to people, let us know and we can look at it. And sometimes we find we've done it, but not done it recently. And then we can do it again with the new up-to-date uh, evidence. But yes, um, I'm sure we can cover it again. Uh, yeah, certainly having kind of dipped our toe into the world of, of pharmacogenomics, it would, be, it would be good to explore it for it mm. so yes thank you for the su- suggestion and the other thing that we've been taken to task for is our use of terminology um a comment from another listener who said the only bit that sometimes irks me is the reference to clinical pharmacists like those working in gp practices are a special breed and a misunderstanding of the role of community pharmacy and their skill set and yes I think you know, it's probably something we are guilty of and should apologise for uh, sloppy terminology. Uh, Recognise that, I guess, the term clinical pharmacist is is, is used incorrectly. Um, and I think sometimes it's used to try and differentiate practice-based pharmacists from community pharmacists. But actually, all pharmacists are trained to be clinical. Um, so... I guess clinical encompasses all pharmacists who work with patients. And if we do need to differentiate, perhaps we should just talk about their place of work rather than calling them a clinical. What do you think, James? Yeah, I mean, apologies. It it is difficult, isn't it? Because I think we were just trying to distinguish between those that are working in practice and those that aren't. And that, I think, will increasingly actually be a blurred edge compared with community pharmacy because community pharmacy is increasingly now doing work that when I first joined general practice was GP stuff. So there's a blurring there. Um, and I think at the same time, I think it is a different job. And certainly, I was about to say the clinical pharmacists I meet, but the pharmacists I meet working in general practice do you know, advise me that it is a very different job to the one that they were doing previously if they worked in, in the community or even in hospitals. So I think there is something about being able to distinguish between those sectors at the moment. But yeah, I appreciate that um, actually the, the term clinical is probably not the right one. No, I think I think clinical refers to anybody who's kind of got a patient facing uh, approach. And if, if, if we need to differentiate, then maybe we'll talk about pharmacists who are working in general practice and pharmacists who are working in community pharmacy or even pharmacists working in hospital. Um, and then perhaps we won't, well, I don't know, maybe that will offend some, but I don't, I don't, that may be cl- clearer than, than trying to use an arbitrary term like clinical, which is meaningless. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the answer is keep, keep coming at us with, with this. And, and because the more we understand the issues people have around terminology, the more likely we are to get it right. So yeah, I'm up for getting it right. That's for sure. 
And if you want to go back in time and explore terminology further, uh, there is an article in this week's BMJ in the When I Use a Word series uh, that looks at apothecaries, quacks, chemists, druggists and pharmacists. Um, I'll include a link to this article in the notes for this podcast if you want to go and read about other forms of terminology. Um, fill your boots. Right, enough of my ramblings, James. Um you attended the NICE conference, was it last week? I just wondered if you've got any reflections that you'd like to share, because you've been to it, I think, pre-COVID days, and now you've been back to it. Any yes, I mean, I've, yes, I, I've, I've had some, some involvement in NICE from quite an early time. I was involved in the guidelines on fever in childhood and uh, also in uh, constipation in childhood as well. Um, and so I have been to a couple of NICE uh, conferences before and this is the first one for perhaps five or even longer years uh, I was disappointed um, I'm just very anxious about the way the landscape in in the UK is developing and it just feels to me and this is my own personal reflection on it it feels to me as if NICE is becoming a rubber stamp to uh, allow drugs that want to be marketed worldwide to say look I've got a nice, I'm cost-effective stamp, a bit like getting an organic stamp for your potatoes or a red tractor for your meat, whatever it might be. But it just feels as if nice is a hostage to fortune at the moment. Um, obviously, we'll, uh, as DTB, you know, watch this very closely. But as a clinician, I'm very concerned. I'm very concerned whether the guidelines that we've trusted and the technical appraisals that we've trusted um, will still be as trustworthy in the years to come. And I think it's really important, particularly us at DTB, that we watch this very carefully. And did you get a sense that the both the, well, the audience, had that changed from, were there fewer, more clinicians than when you last went? Had the makeup changed? And had the content changed? Totally. I mean, I think what was fascinating was clinicians really were absent. And, and yes, it was industry and perhaps that's right um but i think nice did one thing what it did was it it provided clinicians and therefore patients and increasingly by that i mean independent patients i'm really worried a number of patient groups now that are just basically proxy pharma uh, lobbyists um is worrying so that you know where do independent clinicians and independent patients go for independent advice and increasingly it's back to us, DTB. I mean, it's remarkable. It feels like a whole full circle. Um, so yes, we'll just have to see. I mean, I may be wrong. Um, and I may just be a little bit jaded, but certainly ABPI and Pharma were all over the conference in a way that I would have not expected at all. And did you did you get the traditional end of conference email asking you to rate your experience? Oh. I, I don't know whether I have, actually. I'll have to look it up. Um, yes, I, I'm sure there will be one. There usually are in these sorts of things. I mean, there was a, a, a system which allowed you to ask questions during various of the um, the uh, talks and, and events. Um, oddly enough, none of my questions got answered. <laughs> they must <laughs> have had a DGB filter on that uh, <laughs> took them out before they got there. Yes, yes. Who knows? Who knows? Right. Okay. Well. Okay. Well. One. One for us to to keep keep an eye, keep an eye on. 
Rebecca, let's get back to our, our content for this month. And let's start with your editorial um, discussing therapeutic monitoring. Do you want to give us an overview on, on what, what your issues are? Yeah, this is just um, an increasing issue, I think, which which anyone working uh, in, well, probably in any element of clinical work will notice. And that is this burgeoning amount of monitoring that's required, particularly blood tests, but other things as well. So um, there's been a recent study that has suggested now that 50 million blood tests are undertaken in general practice each year. And about almost half, 40 or so percent of them are for monitoring purposes alone. Um, and whilst uh, you might have expected to have one blood test each year at the beginning of this century, by, by 2015, the average patient now has five tests, blood tests each year. And I've just sort of, and this is a big issue because it leads, and I think anyone working in general practice will know this, it leads to up to two hours a day you are looking at results. And that's a threefold increase since two, 2003. Um, and it's not just looking at whether it's normal or abnormal, because so much of the monitoring these days, you have to do some sort of calculation to see whether you've met the guideline recommendations. So whether it's a 40% reduction from baseline non-HDL cholesterol to a, a sustained reduction in glomerular filtration rate of 25%, which might trigger a referral, or having to calculate creatinine clearance for direct acting oral anticoagulants. All these things mean you can't just look at the results and say, normal, abnormal, that takes long enough anyway, but actually you've then got to do some calculations. And of course, patients have access now to these results. So we're going to get patients wanting to understand when it's abnormal, why you know we're not acting and 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 etc. So it's it's going to be a significant issue going forwards, uh, and particularly with the movement of shared care agreements out to the community as well. We're going to be doing even more monitoring. So I just felt it was important. We looked at that. Of course, there's waste. Perhaps as much as twenty five percent of all the tests we do are not required. But actually, there's little attempt at the moment to try and coordinate this or even actually to make sure that the tests we do are evidence based. I mean, when I was brought up to monitor patients with um, hypothyroidism, we were taught that as long as a patient's weight was stable, once they were on the right dose, there was absolutely no need to change that dose or monitor that dose again unless the patient's got symptoms. Now we do it annually. And I don't know whether patients are benefiting from that or not. Um, where's the evidence base for, for all these tests? We, you know, we lengthened the monitoring of uh, blood tests during the COVID epidemic for things like methotrexate. What was the outcome of that? Is anyone looking to see, did patients suffer from that lengthening or actually did we all benefit from that? So I think it requires probably Royal College of GPs and the uh, Royal College of um, Pathologists to work together. Because I think they're the two, it's it's the labs and primary care that are struggling with this most. And I think if they could get together and create some evidence-based guidance on monitoring, we could actually be much more effective and efficient. And we, you know, we're all looking at ways that we can increase productivity and minimize waste in the NHS. And this seems to be a really good opportunity to do just that. And, and there is, isn't there something about the impact it has on, on patients? You know, I think in the past, 
uh, we, we published something about you know the burden of being a patient when you've got to keep going for tests you've got to keep going for appointments and the impact on them of of having a whole series of, of blood tests that may be fairly randomly dispersed across the year now surely we could make better use of, of their time and not and by coordinating them as you say in kind of simple batches they wouldn't have to come as often um, now some people may like coming to your surgery and may like coming to have your, your blood test but i'm sure a lot of people don't want to come as often as they do so there must be something about streamlining their their involvement as well oh totally i mean it must be so frustrating you know you might have a diabetic nurse working in a practice who will call you in for your diabetic review and then it may well be that actually you're on a statin and they haven't done a liver function test or you haven't they haven't done a non-hdl cholesterol they've only done a total one so you've got to go back to have that done and then yes it's just you know they didn't do a thyroid test and you're on thyroxin and that's got so it's just yes and certainly in our neck of the woods there's currently an eight week wait for a routine blood test it's you know it's <laughs> it's it's a tricky old place to get blood tests anyway, and it's because we're doing so many more and i'm sure well you know we know from the evidence that you know we can certainly reduce the waste by 25 percent, and we could probably do better if we were more coordinated and is this something as you suggested in the article which is where software could help us with it with this process or is it do we do we not know enough about that at the moment well i i i think it could I, the algorithm must be very simple um you know, we know, I mean, we know certainly for the COF outcomes framework, the, the, the quality outcome framework, exactly what tests need to be done on patients with certain diagnoses. So if they're, as long as they're coded correctly, um, that's going to be up. And, and, and so much of it, what's so difficult at the moment is, let's say you're starting a patient on spironolactone, which requires actually significantly, you know, involved monitoring, you know, two weeks and then again and again and again over the next few weeks and, and months. Now, wouldn't it be lovely if you could produce just one request that had all those on it, a bit like a sort of... Repeat prescription. Um, yes, and then patients just get that code scanned and, and the lab know what's going on and we know what's going on. Um, so it just, it just, I think it's just one of those things where actually the problem with it is there's not a lot of commercial benefit for anyone in this work and therefore it's you know no one is actually spending the time to think about it but i think it would make a huge difference to uh, anyone working in monitoring the drugs of patients long term and in patients themselves okay well th thank you thank you very much um let's look at one of our select items this month and this is a review of a study that that um, or a study of benpidoic acid. Uh, we we reviewed benpidoic acid, I think, a couple of years ago, maybe 2022, and looked at its lipid-lowering effects. But what does this study focus on? Yeah, so I think we, we were talking about this, weren't we, earlier. I think this is the first study that's actually looked at cardiovascular outcomes in people taking benpidoic acid. So it's actually quite an important study. It was published in Nedrum this year. It's called the CLEAR um, study and it was a double blind randomized placebo controlled trial big multinational um, trial involving about 14,000 patients uh, and it's the only it's one of these things where they looked at patients with increased cardiovascular risk who were struggling either could not take a statin um, or had uh, issues with tolerance with it um, they did this mixture where actually I think 
30% of the population were having statins for primary prevention and about 70% for secondary prevention. So it was a mixed population, but they did look at the subgroups in the results. About half had diabetes as well. So quite an interesting group of patients. And it did seem to demonstrate a benefit um, in reducing the primary, had one of these composite primary outcomes of death from cardiovascular causes, non-fatal myocardial infarction, non-fatal stroke or coronary revascularization. And there was a benefit in the patients at 41 weeks in those that had been on benpatoic acid. And the scale of that benefit, because if you do the numbers, what were the percentages? So for the, let's focus on the total group, not the subgroup. So the, yeah, the total group, 11.7% of the pempadoic acid group had an instance of the primary outcome versus 13.3% in the placebo group. So that's an absolute risk reduction of 1.6%, which is a number needed to treat of 63 over 41 months, which is what, three and a half years. Okay. And so that's the combined. Yeah. This is where it gets a bit weird though. So if you divide it out into the primary prevention group and the secondary prevention group, in the primary prevention group, there was an absolute risk reduction of 2.3% between the groups. In the secondary prevention group, the difference between the outcomes was not significant, which is very odd, isn't it? So you've got a lower risk group where benpadoic acid seems to be reducing their risk. And in the higher risk group, it didn't seem to have any benefit. Yeah, now so make, of, yeah. make of that what you wish. That doesn't feel kind of intuitively right at all. No. Okay. Uh, as, yes, and so what, what was the actual effect on LDL cholesterol from baseline to end of study? So I, the mean low-density lipoprotein levels were 3.6 millimoles per litre at the beginning, and there was a 19.4% reduction in it in the benpadoic acid group and only a 1.6% reduction in the placebo group. So a significant reduction in LDL cholesterol, which we already knew from, from the previous studies. Um, but just a slightly odd issue with the outcome in secondary prevention. Um, and, you know, what does that mean? What, what, what's going on there? You would have thought that if it was effective um, in reducing risk in patients at low risk, it would be effective at reducing the risk in patients at high risk. As, as I recall, there was actually no effect on mortality overall, um, although the composite, no. composite had an effect. Mortality itself was not affected by the drug. No, there was no difference in death from cardiovascular causes or death from any cause. So it had no impact on that at all. And it's, it's got its little own uh, interesting selection of side effects. Um, perhaps the interesting one and one that might catch people out is it does lead to an increase um, risk of gout uh, and gallstones and it does by raising high you know raising uric acid levels so just a little bit of something there for people to be aware of as it as it starts to be used clinically and just a quick reminder where does nice position so it's it's recommended with ezetimibe as an option in patients with primary hypercholesterolemia or mixed dyslipidemia in addition to diet, if statins are contraindicated or not tolerated. So it's got a slightly odd spot at the moment. Um, but, 
you know, who knows where that'll go as we try and hit all these new targets for cardiovascular disease. But as you say, at least you know, another drug that at least we've got some some form of outcome data for, um, and not just relying on on surrogate of, of LDL C lowering. Yeah, absolutely. And I say just that really odd question mark over why there's a sort of difference between primary and secondary prevention. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, and our main article um, is an in-depth, I have to say it's an in-depth, it's, it's a very good one, but it's an in-depth review of semaglutide for obesity. Do you want to just give an outline of, of what we cover? Yeah, as you say, I mean, what don't we cover? I mean, you, you probably have to be um, under a rock to not have understood the noise around semaglutide gay, obtaining a license to treat obesity. Um, but uh, Joel Lechkin and uh, Barbara Minzi has done a fantastic job at looking at the background to the obesity issue itself, looking at the licensing and development of semaglutide, looking at the clinical trials that have been done to support its use and looking at the sort of outcomes you can expect from using semaglutide for weight reduction. And then also just also looking at um, the publicity surrounding this, the, the controversy around uh, Nova Nordisk um, and their incredible marketing they've done, some of which has been basically um, contrary to ABPI guidelines and has actually led them to being suspended from it. Uh, for the time being. So yes, a really, really great uh, article. And for those who want to know the answer, how good is semaglutide? The answer is possibly around 15 kilograms of weight loss after uh, 68 weeks. Um, there's one study that then looked at people for a further 68 weeks and showed that probably as many as 75% of that weight they lost goes back on again. Um, so it it doesn't seem to be really for my way of thinking um, the panacea that everyone thinks it's going to be for obesity um, but there's you know we'll have to wait and see when it's used clinically how how much benefit it does it does give what, what I liked about this this article was the, the fact that the Barbara and Joel you know questioned other issues, I mean, yes, they looked at the evidence in, in depth and they give you the numbers for weight loss with from the, from the clinical trials. But they also looked at some of the debate around whether is obesity a, a, a disease? Is it not a disease? Should we regard it as a, a disease? And then some of the society issues around, you know, what are the determinants of obesity and, and should we be addressing those rather than um, putting all our eggs into the kind of the, the, the drug basket? So there's a lot. There's a lot in this article that I think is is you know food food for thought. If that's not an inappropriate uh, statement, um, <laughs> and, and then challenging some of the the hype around the you know the, and the impact it's had on shortages of of various forms of, of semaglutide and the other and the other uh, drugs in this in this field. So it's it's kind of pretty wide ranging. Looks at lots of stuff. Yes, and you know, and I think if it does have a significant benefit outside the weight loss and obviously that that's a great thing um you know we'd be very very happy to see that but um obviously all the hype really has just been around the, the idea that it is the the sort of fashionable thing to to take for your weight um and you know as we expected 
if you stop the drug, it, you know, the weight goes on. And I know there are some people who've been talking about, well, you know, if you if one considers obesity a disease, then we should be treating patients for that lifelong and therefore they should be on semiglutide lifelong. And, and that just seems such a, a strange place to be in my way of thinking. Um, but uh, it's difficult. We live in a very obesogenic uh, society. Um, and it, it's, I, I've just, I was trying to think of an analogy to this. It feels like we're in a, an obesogenic swamp and, and these drugs are like putting on waterproofs, but of course they only work for the time you wear them. What we really need to do is is drain the swamp, as Ronald Reagan once said. Was it Reagan or, or was it? A lot of people have said it. And Ronald Reagan first said it. Well, actually, he wasn't the first one to say it, but he used it in 1983. So I feel happy to so, okay. quote from him. But yes, we need to drain the swamp. Yeah, and, and as they say at the end of the article, you know, it's important. And it's all back to this this argument of, and I, and I don't buy into it, of being an, a nanny state, but but it is this argument about whether you address the fundamentals of, of complex factors that are contributing to the development of obesity, or do you wait till it's happened and then give people a drug to try and do damage limitation? Now, clearly, there's a point at which you have to do both, but shouldn't we be equally focusing on all those determinants that cause or contribute to the development of obesity rather than just hoping that this drug is going to solve our problems. Totally. I mean, what can be more nanny state than to give people medicines? You know, what's more, <laughs> you know, it's more paternalistic to say, you know, rather than here, look, you know, this is our life. This is what's going on. No, we're going to, we're going to say, take this medicine. It's, it's, it's a funny, funny world. And I, and I really worry about the whole uh, life sciences approach where all the f money is it's where all the, the focus is and and lifestyle i didn't hear lifestyle mentioned once at the nice conference um because you can't make any money out of lifestyle on the whole not not if you're a pharmaceutical company anyway okay thank you for that that summary um you can find these and all our articles on our website at dtp.bmj.com and all our previous podcasts are also available at the uh, just click the podcast button at the top of the homepage. Uh, if you want to pick us up on something we've said that you disagree with uh, or something you even that you agree with, then please let us know. Uh, email us at dtb at bmj.com. So thank you for listening. Uh, and we hope you'll be able to join us in a month's time for the January 2024 podcast. <laughs>